Most of the lessons I've learned, I've learned with scar tissue. Most of the lessons your children, grandchildren, family, friends will learn will come the same way. It's never too late to follow Jesus. Do it earlier than later. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Genesis 31, and we'll continue in the life of Jacob. In the movie Mary Poppins, The title character, and this is the original Mary Poppins. Yeah, the, the old Mary Poppins, 1964. The title character is blown into the bank's household on a strong east wind and declares, I shall stay until the wind changes. Of course, the new one says, I shall stay until the door opens, right? Mary Poppins knows that her stay will be temporary. Mary Poppins knows that her job is really to reconcile the heart of George Banks, the father, with his two children, Jane and Michael. And when the wind changes, her job is over, and she's carried away by the wind to her next assignment. This is the exact situation Jacob finds himself in today. We're going to see that Jacob's job in Haran is almost over, and the divine wind of the Holy Spirit is leading Jacob to his next assignment. Now, 20 years ago, Jacob had left Canaan as a 77-year-old man. He had come to Laban, 550 miles away, seeking asylum from his brother Esau, who was trying to kill him. And he was also seeking to marry a bride from his mother Rebekah's family. So for the first 14 years of his relationship with his father-in-law Laban, he worked for him to pay the bride price or the dowry for his two daughters. So Jacob winds up marrying both daughters, Leah and Rachel, in a period of about eight days. I do not recommend you practice that. <laughs> After this obligation's completed, 14 years of labor for his two wives, Jacob wanted to end his employment with Laban and he wanted to go back home to Canaan, which is 500 some odd miles southwest. However, Laban had figured out that God was blessing his ranching operations, his flocks and his herds, because Jacob was working for him. So he tries to persuade Jacob to stay on, and he says, Jacob, you can name your wages. I'll pay you whatever you want. Just keep working for me, because I figured out that God is blessing me. So Jacob tells Laban that all he wants are the spotted, speckled, and striped animals that are going to be born in the future. Now, the vast majority of these animals in the flock were solid colored, so Laban figures this is a great deal. He only wants the speckled, spotted, and striped, and most of the animals are solid colored. I can't lose, right? However, God intervenes and causes Laban's flock to produce an abundance of speckled, spotted, and striped Animals. So over this six-year period, Laban's herd gets smaller and smaller. Jacob's herd gets larger and larger, and they're all speckled, spotted, and striped. And this produces a lot of jealousy and a lot of anger in Laban and his family. If you could pick up the narrative, Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Here's the principle. Christians are pilgrims who follow Jesus as he leads them through his spirit, his word, and their circumstances. Christians are pilgrims who follow Jesus as he leads them 
through his spirit or using his spirit, his word in their circumstances. So God directs the paths of his children, which is you and I, in three primary ways. First of all, the inner leading of the Holy Spirit uh, as he speaks to their hearts. From time to time, you will have a distinct impression that God wants you to do something. It's almost like a pull, right? You have the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And when that occurs, you can either chose, choose to listen or not to listen. Uh, Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are children of God. So we as Christians have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God leads us to do things. The Spirit of God guides us, leads us, teaches us, strengthens us, and we can choose to listen or not. Second way God leads us is through the outward circumstances of life. Circumstances, by the way, are not necessarily definitive, but God arranges our circumstances to show us, many cases, what he wants us to do next. And we're going to see God radically change Jacob's circumstances to move him in a specific direction. And sometimes God will change your circumstances to move us in specific directions. And thirdly, the truth of God's word is an infallible guide to your life. The will of God is found in the word of God. You can write that down. If you want to find out what the will of God is, he wrote it down. And you've got his thinking in your laps or on your phones. The truth of God's word is in his Bible. He wrote it down so we would know it and obey it. Now, six years earlier than this particular passage, God began to speak to Jacob and impress on him that he needed to go back to Canaan. But it wasn't quite the right time yet. It wasn't quite God's time for him to leave. So in, the, in that last six years, God has prospered Jacob dramatically. That's a change in circumstances. God has also allowed his relationship with his in-laws to deteriorate. God does not want relationships to deteriorate, but he allowed that to occur. So Jacob is now wealthy, and Laban is now jealous of that wealth. Earlier, Laban viewed Jacob as an asset because God was blessing Laban through Jacob. Now Jacob is being blessed apparently more than Laban, and Laban's jealousy muscle and his greed muscle are in high gear, and he is anger, angry with Jacob, and the relationship begins to deteriorate, and Laban's sons hate Jacob as well. So Jacob has been pretty comfortable and very prosperous in Haran. He reminds us of eagles. Rob is going to show you a little eagle's nest here. Eagle's chicks are hatched and reared in a nest, very elevated above the ground, Eagles' nests, by the way, are usually pretty high up because they're predators, they're raptors, and they have great eyesight. So they hunt by day because they have good eyesight and they can see long distances. Eagles construct their nest. The bottom of it's pretty good-sized branches, broken sticks, branches, even thorns. And they cover the inside of that nest then with fur, down, and feathers to make it comfortable uh, for the chicks. And the nest is familiar, and mom and dad continually feed the chicks. They bring all the food in. However, eagles were designed to fly. They were not designed to spend all their lives in the nest. So there comes a day when the parents want to encourage their young to fly, and they do it a couple of different ways. And this is very instructive for us as parents. First thing eagles do when they want their, their young to learn to fly is they stop bringing as much food home. Just saying. So hunger is a great cook, right? So the eagle brings less and less food to the chicks, so they're going to be motivated to, you know, hungry to go feed. Number two, they make the nest uncomfortable. When they you hear the term stir up the nest, that's a term for raptors literally taking the down, the feathers, and the fur, all that comfortable stuff, and literally throwing it out of the nest. So the eagle chicks now are sitting on branches and thorns, which makes it really, really uncomfortable for them just to hang around the nest when it's time to go. And I'm thinking, wow, some young people never leave home because it's too comfortable. It's so easy to stay. And when it's time to leave, we should make it less comfortable. Yes? 
Here's the problem. When you make it less comfortable for them, you make it less comfortable for you. And we don't like to be uncomfortable either, but God has no problem making our lives uncomfortable if it's to move us in a direction that he wants us to go. And that's precisely what happens to Jacob. So when mom and dad eagle determine the time is right for the baby eagle to fly, they literally push it out of the nest, over the edge, into midair. And the eaglet's flapping its wings furiously and literally most often goes into free fall until mom swoops underneath, catches the eagle on the back, brings it back up to the edge of the nest, lets its heart rate settle down and <laughs> kicks it out again. And that lesson gets repeated over and over and over until the chick learns to fly. Do you know why that's important? Flying is not an optional skill set for an eagle. If you don't fly, you're going to die. Because you hunt from the air. Now, there are skills and character traits God is irrevocably committed to develop in us, and we know what they are. God wants to separate us from sin and shape us like Jesus, Romans 8, 28. God wants to, and 29, separate us from sin and shape us like Jesus. Separate us from sin and shape us like Jesus. You can, you can look at your life and realize that God will over and over and over and over arrange your circumstances kick you out of the nest, let you go into free fall for the express purpose of making you and I like Jesus. Now, Jacob is like this baby eagle. He's gotten really comfortable, wealthy, and settled in a foreign country. Chances are, if his circumstances had not changed, he may have never left Haran and gone back to Canaan. But like the eagle parents, God's motivating Jacob to move by arranging his circumstances to become uncomfortable. Furthermore, God then appears to Jacob directly and commands him to leave Haran, go back to Canaan, and I will be with you. He promises Jacob, you leave, I'm going to be back, I'm going to be with you. Interesting, John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. How do you know you're a sheep? They follow me. God's sheep always follow the shepherd. I didn't say we're faithful every day. Sometimes we wander off. But the bottom line is the course of a sheep's life is to follow the voice of the shepherd. So Jacob has the pull of God's call, go to Haran, and the push of Laban's jealousy moving him in the path that God wants. We're like Jacob. We're like the eagle. We want that comfortable nest where everything is predictable and everything is easy and the recliner and the remote, and we would like a butler as well if we could get one, right? I mean, that's just human nature. But God says, if you're in a place that I don't want you to stay, I'm going to change the circumstances to motivate you to move to where he wants you to be. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually, wherever. Spiritual inertia is a very close cousin to complacency. And that is death to spiritual growth. And comfort then becomes more important than obedience. And like Mary Poppins, we all have a job description that God's called us to do. And when that work is over, God calls us to another place of service. So beginning in 2019, the end of 2018, I always, I'm going to highly recommend you do this, spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, what do you have for me in 2019? What is it you want me to continue to do that I've been doing? And what is this? Is there anything you want me to change? Are there any directions you're pulling me? Are there any circumstances that I'm supposed to be paying attention to that you're changing because you have something different for me than what you had in 2019? Just remember, follow Jesus wherever he goes, whenever he goes, and however he goes. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, 
I see your father's attitude that is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my fathers has been with me. Verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Verse 12. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped and speckled and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Here's the principle. As you follow Jesus, tell others what he has done for you and invite them to follow him as well. As you follow Jesus, tell others what he has done for you and invite them to follow him as well. Jacob calls a private meeting with his two wives, Leah and Rachel, so obviously so Laban, their dad, won't hear the discussion. And he tells them how their father's treating him and what God has commanded them to do. He tells them the real reason his wealth is increasing is because God's blessing. He's not cheating Laban. Their father's flock is decreasing and his flock is increasing because of God's divine intervention. This is the first time we see Jacob exercising spiritual leadership in his family. It's about 20 years he's been with Laban. He's been married to both these women for about 14 years. He married them in year seven. It's roughly now 20. So this is the first time he exercises spiritual leadership. He makes a public statement of faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and he recounts his experiences with God. He says, this is what God has done for me, and this is what God is telling me to do. Jacob is seeking their support, which is a wise thing to do. Because 20 years before at Bethel, Jacob had made a vow. Jacob had made a promise to God. He says, I'm going to follow you, God, if you do four things. Right? Number one, if you're with me. Number two, I'll follow you if you keep me safe on my journey to Haran. Number three, I'll follow you if you give me bread to eat and clothes to wear. And number four, I'll follow you if you bring me back to my father's house. Now, in fact, God has kept those promises. God was with him, brought him safely to Haran, right? God protected him on the way and protected him in Haran. Thirdly, God has blessed Jacob with far more than just clothing and sustenance. I mean, he's an extraordinarily wealthy guy. His flocks and his herds are huge. He owns multiple sets of camels. That was potentate royal transportation. If you owned a series of camels, you were extraordinarily wealthy. So God has anointed him with vast prosperity. And God's already said, you go back to Canaan and I'm going to protect you. I will be with you on your journey back to the promised land. Now, Jacob wisely wants a unified family. He wants his, his wives and his children to be with him. He wants them to follow God together. So he recounts all that God has done, tells them why he wants to go back to Canaan, and he wants them on board. I think that's a very prudent thing. Wise leaders, and if you're a parent or a grandparent, you're a leader. Wise leaders tell others why they are doing what they are doing, and then invite others to follow so if you're following Jesus, do you know why you're following Jesus? I hope so. Because the people that are following you want to know why you're doing what you're doing. So God has prospered Jacob with a large family, material wealth, and you say, why would he want to go back to Canaan? Well, number one, God commanded them to go. That's all the reason you really need. Number two, Jacob's wives grew up in a pagan household. When you look at the character of Laban, this guy is not your typical Boy Scout. This guy's a first-class liar. He's a pagan idolater. And these two wives are about to teach his young children everything they know that they've learned from daddy. God says it's time for a change of environment. Like an eagle, God's going to push Jacob out of his comfortable nest because God has something better in store for him. We're going to find out next week, Lord willing. God has arranged a face-to-face -face meeting with Jacob in only a couple of weeks. It's going to completely transform his life. God's going to meet Jacob at a place called Penuel, and he's going to 
have a wrestling match with Jacob. He's going to change Jacob. By the way, the name Jacob means deceiver. And you have children named Jacob. Just saying. He's going to change his name into Israel, which means he who wrestles with God or he who clings to God. Jacob's going to go from being a settler to being a sojourner, from being a one who was planted to being a pilgrim and ultimately to being a patriarch with God. And he can't, God's not going to accomplish that work in Jacob's life in the land of Canaan. That's going to take place, I mean, in the land of Haran. That's going to take place in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land where the Messiah is going to be born. So the application for us is pretty simple. Lord, am I where you want me to be? Am I doing what you want me to do where I am? And if so, keep doing what you're doing. But be available if God says, I want you to move. Maybe not physically move. It may be physical move. But I, I have a work for you that's going to involve change. And we hate change. And yet God is irrevocably committed to change. By the way, no matter how well you're doing now, how obedient you are for the Lord, God knows that you are not yet like Jesus. So the work of spiritual growth and change goes on until we go home. We just have to be willing to say, Lord, I want to be like Jesus and I'm willing to cooperate with whatever changes you want to make. Verse 14, Rachel and Leah said to Jacob, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? This is heartbreaking. Are we not reckoned by our father as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels. That's plural. He had a fleet of them apparently. This is like Peterbilt's, right? And he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father's house. Verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols which were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all he had, and he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Here's the principle. Following Jesus means trusting him with everything you have in the present and for everything you need in the future. Following Jesus means trusting him with everything you have in the present and for everything you will need in the future. Leah and Rachel, Jacob's two wives, are usually at loggerheads. They're usually arguing and fighting, and they are unanimous here. Both of them feel alienated from their father. They believe he has disinherited them. They believe that his future plans do not include them. He treats them like strangers and foreigners. He treats them like property, not like family. He took their dowry payments, which some portion of which was supposed to go to bless them, and he's consumed it all on himself. He is a self-centered parent. And he's lost the relationship with his children, which is heartbreaking. They have no future with their family in Haran, and they agree to follow Jacob back to Canaan. Who does this remind you of? Ruth. Ruth, born in Moab, native land, chooses what? To follow Naomi back into the land of Judah and completely leave her family's pagan heritage behind. It's a great statement of faith on their part. They understand that God is with Jacob and they want to be with him too. So Jacob is leaving Haran according to God's command. Rob's going to give you a pic of this. It's about a 500-mile journey back to Canaan. Now Jacob is being obedient. He is going back to Canaan. He's doing God's will, but he's not doing God's will in God's way. Jacob is still a schemer. He's obeying God, but he's obeying God his way, not God's way. He is so afraid that Laban will not let him leave because Laban is greedy. He's afraid that Laban will keep all his possessions and maybe even his wives. 
So Jacob slips away when Laban's away from home. Laban is shearing his sheep out in the fields, and Jacob deceives Laban by not telling him up front. The problem is Jacob does not yet trust that the God who commanded him to leave Haran and promised to be with him on the way back to Canaan, Jacob is not convinced that that God is able to protect him from Laban. And we have that same issue. Because all of us face problems in life that we're sometimes not convinced God can handle. Is that not true? Or we're not convinced he's going to handle it our way. Or we're not convinced he's going to handle it our way in our time. You know, we want him to fix it when we want him to fix it. Which is usually yesterday. God, if you really love me, you would have prevented this problem. I wouldn't even be dealing with this. When that happens, we get what we call the princess syndrome. That's, and I, it could, you could call it the prince syndrome. It's, it's gender neutral, right? It doesn't breed faith in God. It breeds self-centeredness. God is not our Santa Claus. So Jacob is still not trusting God. So he still has to depend on his own schemes and plots. And he's going to leave when Laban doesn't know what he's going to deceive him. And his deception is based on fear, not faith. Almost all deceptions based on fear. We lie because we're afraid of what happens if we tell the truth. That's what happens to Jacob here. So Jacob leaves town. Laban doesn't hear about it for three days. So three days after, Laban, after Jacob leaves, Laban hears about it. He leaves his flock in the field. He races back home, gets his family together, arms them, and gets on horseback, and they pursue Jacob. So Jacob has a three-day head start. He travels about 300 miles before Laban catches up to him, seven days later in the mountains of Gilead. So Jacob's been on the road for about 10 days now. To cover 300 miles with flocks and herds in 10 days, man, that's hard driving. So Rob's going to show you an image of the hill country of Gilead. This is a lot further south than what I had thought it was. I really didn't think that it was this far south until I looked at the map. The hill country of Gilead is really east of the Jordan River, and it really runs from just north of the Sea of Galilee all the way south to the Dead Sea. So this is where Ammon used to be, the nation of Ammon. Moab was even further south of that. Jacob has crossed the Euphrates River. Jacob has come all the way through Damascus already. Jacob is way south by the time Laban catches up to him. If Jacob, if, uh, if, 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 if Laban had finished shearing his sheep, Jacob would have made it all the way to Canaan and they would not have had any contact at that point. It would have been too late. When you read this narrative, you're really persuaded that Laban intends to take Jacob's flocks, his herds, and maybe even his wives back to Haran by force. I mean, that's the impression you get. It sounds like a military encampment. He arms his his family, and they go after him on horseback, etc. However, the night before Laban makes contact with Jacob, God makes contact with Laban. Verse 24. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. Has God ever told you, be careful? You be careful. When God tells you to be careful, I suggest that you be careful. When God warns us, since he knows the future, since he controls the future, He's not speculating. He's telling you, be careful. And what's he saying? He's saying, number one, do not harm Jacob. Number one. Number two, when it says, do not speak to him either good or bad, it says, you are not to persuade him. Either good or bad, threaten good or bad, or promise good to bring him back to Haran. You are not to influence him. Which means, it's like us with our grandchildren and our children. Talk to God first, talk less to them. 
So Laban, shut your lips. It's interesting. Jacob was fleeing from Laban because he was what? Scared of Laban. And he had been told by God, I am going to be with you on your journey back to Canaan. And the night before Laban makes contact with Jacob, God has a little conversation with Laban. So we see God not only guiding Jacob back into Canaan, but God is guarding Jacob on his journey as well. Jacob is learning that following God is trusting God with everything he has now, all his possessions, you know, your stock portfolio, your house, your health, your relationships, that's everything we have now. But it's also trusting God with everything we're going to need in the future. And you say, well, I don't know what I'm going to need in the future. Precisely. Who knows what you're going to need in the future? See, we don't believe that. We think we know what we need in the future. And you know what we think we need in the future? Always more. Right? More stuff, more money, more health, more. It's always more. How many of you said, God, you know, I need less. I need less stuff. I need less health. I need less friends. Okay. I, I, I need less relatives. Can't do anything about that one. Okay. <clears throat> what we'd all like to have is less years. You know, how about, how about more health, less years? God knows what we need. God knows when we need it, and God knows how we need it. Philippians 4.19 says what? And my God will supply all your, according to what? How big is his riches in glory in Christ Jesus? Eternal, infinite, God is all-knowing. He knows precisely what we need. This is where we get into arguments with God. He gives us what we need, and that does usually not what we want. So we confuse what we need with what we want, and our prayers reveal that. God, give me blah, 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 please. Really, please. God, you, you know, please. God knows what we need. Better you should get what you need than what you want, because many times when we get what we want, two days later we wake up and say, why did I ask for this? Right? How many of you were heartbroken the first time somebody broke up with you in high school or junior high or college or whatever? God, I'll never love again. And now you look back or you go to your high school reunion and you go, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Life could have been catastrophic. I could have actually married that schmuck. Right? I mean, come on. You know. You know. God knows what we need more than we do. So Laban is this con artist. And he, when he meets Jacob, he goes on the offensive. Number one, he accuses Jacob of kidnapping his daughters. Really. He claims that he could hurt Jacob. He probably could. They're all armed, right? Horseback. But God had warned him in a dream not to touch Jacob. Well, apparently Laban has enough fear of God that he's going to listen to that. He claims to understand that Jacob is homesick. He says, Jacob, I understand why you wanted to go home. You were homesick, hadn't seen mom and dad in 20 years. I know you want to be back home. You know, but why didn't you let me throw a party for you? You know, tell me you're leaving. I'd have thrown a party and we'd have had a nice time with your kids and grandchildren. All of that's a crock of you know what. He doesn't care about them. He did, the issue's not Rachel or Leah. The issue's not even his grandchildren. The real issue is his idols. That's why he came chasing after Jacob, because he accused Jacob of stealing his idols. Laban hasn't figured out that any idol, any god that you can pick up and steal is a pretty worthless god. Now, if you can pick up and steal a god, I mean, this is not exactly an all-powerful god here. But let me give you some historical context. These household idols were really highly prized in this Chaldean Mesopotamian culture. They used these idols because they thought they could foretell the future. So for divination, you know, they can tell the future by going through the, the worship ceremonies uh, with these idols. So they, number one, to foretell the future. Number two, they were used as pagan idol worships. They had place of, of honor in the home and they would worship them. And it's interesting you say, well, Rachel 
who's his favorite wife, stole the idols. Did she want to use them to tell the future? Is she mixing pagan worship with worship of Yahweh? Probably. That's her culture. She came out of a pagan idolatrous background. Most often, these deities, these idols, were female deities who were thought to produce fertility. And Rachel may have stolen them, hoping that they could help her get pregnant again. She'd already had Joseph. Benjamin hadn't been born yet. She had a lot of problems getting pregnant, and she may have stolen them because they were thought to produce fertility. They were literally, these, these gods, little idols were small figurines, usually made out of some precious substance, ivory or whatever, two or three inches long, and sometimes they wore them around the neck. So they were pretty small things. But the most important things these idols conveyed is the rights of inheritance. And that's the real reason we believe that Laban came after uh, Jacob. A number of decades ago, we discovered something called the Nuzri Tablets, N-U-Z-R-I. They were discovered in this region. And those Nuzri Tablets revealed that in that era, whoever possessed the household idols was considered the legitimate heir to the family fortune. So they were almost like a title deed. If you owned these idols and they were in your possession, you were considered to be the legitimate heir to the family fortune. Now, we already know that Rachel and Leah feel, feel that Laban had stiffed them out of their fortune, had ripped them off, had not given them their inheritance. Very likely, very possible, that Rachel thought, okay, if dad stole our dowries from us, then I'm going to take these idols and that'll protect our future claim against dad's inheritance when he's dead. We'll be able to present these idols in a court of law and we're going to get a percentage of his estate. At any rate, Laban really wants him back, and he accuses Jacob of stealing them. Jacob denies the theft. And then Jacob does something really <laughs> foolish. He says, whoever stole the idols should die. Wow. He doesn't dream that his favorite wife, Rachel, is the one who stole the idols. This could have been deep water, right? It's interesting. Jacob and Rachel are really two of a kind. They're both good liars, really good liars. She steals her father's idols rashly, and he rashly vows that whoever stole them will die. Jacob says, you can search the whole camp, see if you can find these idols. So it says Laban literally goes through piece by piece through Jacob's tent, can't find anything. Piece by piece through, Rachel, through Leah's tent, can't find anything. And then he goes through Leah's tent. I mean, Rachel's tent. And she is sitting on a camel saddle. You've seen saddles of horses. Well, they have camel saddles for camels as well. She's sitting on this camel saddle, and the idols are hidden in the saddlebags. And she's sitting on top of the saddle inside her tent. And she tells Laban that she can't stand up because she's menstruating. And he believes her. He didn't dream that any woman would desecrate the family idols by sitting on them during her period. Because she was considered unclean. I mean, during that period of time, that culture, you were literally ritually unclean during that time of the month. He wouldn't have believed that his own daughter would desecrate something that honorable by, by sitting on them when you're in that unclean state, right? Rachel, Jacob, and Laban are incredibly good at deception. So he can't find anything, and Jacob unloads the boat on him. Jacob gives him 20 years of history. He says, for 20 years I've served you faithfully. You tried to rip me off that whole time. The law during that period of time, by the way, said if a shepherd was watching sheep and a wild animal killed a sheep... The shepherd was not held responsible for losses to the master's flock due to wild animal attacks. However, Laban always held Jacob accountable. Jacob the shepherd had to replace Laban's dead animals with some of his own flock, right? Furthermore, it was always assumed that law said that the shepherd could eat from the flock. You could kill a ram and eat it or a sheep as part of your sustenance. Not with Laban. You couldn't touch it. If there was any animal dead and you ate it, you replaced it. Jacob says, I served you in freezing nights and burning hot days. I served you 24 hours a day. I didn't sleep 
Furthermore, you changed my wages 10 times to reduce my herd and increase your herd. If the flock began to produce spotted offspring, Laban would change the deal and say, no, no, Jacob, you only keep the striped animals. The spotted animals are mine. When God then would produce striped animals for Jacob, Laban would change the deal again and say, Jacob, you can only keep the speckled animals. The striped offspring are mine. And he did this 10 times during the course of this six-year period. So Laban's pretty greedy. He never gets enough. Jacob says, if God himself hadn't protected me, you literally would have sent me away empty-handed. And I'm your son-in-law. I've married your daughters. You think you have trouble with your in-laws? After Jacob gets done, it's pretty clear that Laban can't attack Jacob by force because God told him not to. So if he can't beat him, let's make a deal. Verse 44. Laban says, so come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban said, verse 48, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore was named Galid, verse 49, and Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from the other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, verse 54. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain, called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban arose, kissed his sons and daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban and departed and returned to his place. Here's the principle. You cannot serve Jesus and the world at the same time. Our choices, your choices either move you closer to God or further away from God. You cannot follow Jesus and the world at the same time. Our choices either move us closer to God or further away from God. Every path leads to one of two directions. Every path in life either moves you closer to God or moves you further away from God, and you're on one of those paths. You can't be neutral and go, well, I haven't chosen. You've chosen. Everybody chooses. When you're born, you're born in sin. We're automatically moving away from God. That's the nature of the sin nature. We choose by our nature to move away from God. Only when we repent through the grace of God will we choose to move back toward God. And you're going to see Laban is clearly moving in a different path than Jacob is moving. By the way, this little conversation they have here, this, this so-called truce, this is not a declaration of peace. This is not a peace treaty. This is a mutual non-aggression pact. It's a parity covenant, right? Now, during this era, if you made a covenant with someone, both sides made promises. I'll do this, you do this. Both of them made solemn vows to keep their end of the bargain. They usually set up some kind of physical memorial to, to remember that agreement with. They usually completed the sacrifice together and they usually ate a meal. So you're going to look at this and go, well, looks like Jacob and Laban followed this formula. The truth is, neither of them trusted the other person at all. Laban didn't trust Jacob. Jacob didn't trust Laban. So they elect, they erect a real one large single rock pillar. When you hear the word pillar in the Bible, that's one rock. It's a very big, tall rock. And then they heaped a bunch of stones around the pillar to keep it upright. So that's when they said a heap of stones. It was kind of circling the pillar to keep it upright. And that served as a physical memorial to this covenant they made. Laban calls it a heap of stones. Literally means the heap of testimony to commemorate this covenant. But furthermore, this big pile of rocks not only served as a, a covenant marker, it served as a boundary marker. It basically says, your territory ends here, my territory begins here. 
You're not going to cross this territory marker to harm me. I'm not going to cross this territory marker to, to harm you. And you say, well, Laban's the one who's proposing this. What's going on? Laban knew he'd shafted Jacob. He knew that the blessing of God was on Jacob. Laban proposes this mutual non-aggression pact because he's worried that God's going to bless Jacob back in Canaan. And at some point, Jacob's going to be stronger than him. And he might cross that boundary marker, come back to Haran and take care of business. In other words, revenge. So he wants this non-aggression pact. By the way, this word mizpah means watchtower. Since neither party could keep an eye on the other, right? They, they said, God's going to have to keep an eye on you because I can't. Just saying, God's watching you, baby, right? They didn't trust each other, so they had to trust that God was going to guard between them, right? This is not a really good relationship to have with your in-laws. Um, but if they're 550 miles away by foot, that might help. So Jacob offers a sacrifice to the Lord to honor the God of his fathers who's provided and protected him, and they eat a meal together. And you say, well, yeah, I go to McDonald's with people. No, this is, this is a meal. This is a ceremonial meal to commemorate a covenant that you swore you would keep. So eating a meal together in the ancient Near East was not a casual event. When you ate a meal with someone, you were swearing a covenant of protection. You could never attack somebody you shared a meal with. That was a covenant of friendship. That was a sacred event. So when you had a meal together, it meant a lot more than just sustenance. It was a bond, if you will, of, 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 of mutual protection. So the next morning, Laban comes over, kisses them all goodbye, and he rides off the pages of Scripture. Never hear of him again. And it says he goes back to his place. Back to Haran. Haran is an idol-worshiping center, if you will, that God called Abraham out of. And Laban goes back to. Laban's not redeemed. Furthermore, he's not interested in being redeemed. That's his path. Jacob is moving forward into the land of Canaan. He's moving forward into the land that God told him to go to. In obedience, he's moving into the land that God promised him. Remember at Bethel, God says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you multiple descendants. And from this land and from your descendants comes what? Messiah, the king that Brian preached about this morning. The reality is followers of Jesus walk a different path than people who refuse to follow Jesus. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You cannot follow Jesus and follow someone who refuses to follow Jesus at the same time. You have to choose. As a matter of fact, you've already chosen. You're going to be on one of the two paths. There's no neutrality. And the, by the way, when you're, have you ever been to an airport where they have these automatic walkways? When those puppies are running, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You're at the Denver airport. I mean, they go for a long way, right? Or Phoenix is about as bad. And when you're on one of those automatic runways, you don't have to do anything. You just stand there and what? It takes you to a destination. Well, if you choose not to follow God, you're already on a pathway away from God. That's the culture we live in. You don't have to do anything. Doing nothing means you're moving away from God. You're moving toward God. That is a commitment on your part, a conscious decision of the will. Every morning, today, I want to walk with God. What does that look like? Lord, show me. Guide me. Lead me. And I promise to be obedient to whatever you tell me to do. Every path you choose either leads to God or leads away from God, and you can't walk both, and everybody's already on one of them. Now, Jacob has finally made an irrevocable commitment to follow God. And he's 97 years old. Finally. And you thought you were slow. And some of us are. 
very slow. But nobody here is 97. You might look 97, but you're not, believe me. (laughs) The point is, it's never too late to follow Jesus. Every morning we wake up and we're going to follow a path that day. Am I going to move closer to Jesus? I'm going to move further away. Am I going to be obedient or am I going to be disobedient? When the Holy Spirit leads, am I going to say later or am I going to make the phone call? I got a very strong impression last night I was supposed to make a phone call. For once, I obeyed it. Okay? I'm not bragging or complaining. Brad is a little slow sometimes. Jacob's 97. He's going to live another 50 years. He's about 230. He dies 147 years old. So no matter how old or how young you are, make the decision to follow Jesus sooner than later. Why would you go through the heartache of not doing it? And you know, this is why we just literally bang on heaven's door with prayers because we are heartbroken when our children and our grandchildren go through scar tissue and broken bones that this world lays on him, you're going, this is all avoidable. You don't have to do this. But that's the stubbornness and the sinful of the human heart. And we know that because we have all done it. And yet, God wants to use those painful circumstances to teach our children, our grandchildren to follow him the same way that God stirs up the nest and makes our circumstances unequal, the same way that an eagle tears the nest up so the thorns underneath motivate them to make a change. Most of the lessons I've learned, I've learned with scar tissue. Most of the lessons your children, grandchildren, family, friends will learn will come the same way. It's never too late to follow Jesus. Do it earlier than later. Okay, let's summarize before Tom comes up and brings us our prayer and our praises. Point one. Christians are pilgrims. You are not settlers. This world is not home. You can't stay here. You don't want to stay here, by the way. Christians are pilgrims who follow Jesus as he leads them through his spirit, through his word, and through their circumstances. Number two, as you follow Jesus, tell others what he has done for you and invite them to come along. Invite them to follow Jesus as well. Just like Jacob did with Leah and Rachel. You want to the unified family. We do that with our children and grandchildren. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them why we're doing what we're doing, what he's done for us. Invite them to come along. Number three, following Jesus means trusting with everything we have in the present. We know all about that and for everything we're going to need in the future. And God will supply all our needs. Lastly, you cannot follow Jesus and the world at the same time. Your choices either move you closer to God or further away from God. Next week, keep reading ahead. Lord willing, we'll talk about God meeting Jacob at Penuel. Thank you for coming. I love you. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.